0: In spring 2013, Khaled Al-Halabi left behind his life as the head of General Intelligence Branch 335 in the city of Raqqa. We know that with the help of his connections in Raqqa, as well as certain members of armed opposition forces, Halabi was smuggled out of the city.
1: They took him to Turkey, then he went to other
0: places. But where did he go next? This is the Syria Trials, the disappearing general. I'm your host, Fritz Streif, and this is episode five, Destination Europe. Steve Costas is a lawyer at the NGO, the Open Society Justice Initiative. I don't know from our own
2: investigations what he did, but I've seen reporting that he then traveled. At some point to Jordan and from Jordan to France, and that's where our engagement picks up.
0: The reporting suggests that Halabi made it from Turkey to Jordan, thanks to a helping hand from the Lebanese politician and Jews leader Walid Jumblat. Then, in February 2014, nearly a year after he had first left Syria, Halabi received a single use travel document and visa from the French embassy in Amman, the capital of Jordan. According to the entry stamp, he landed in Paris on February 27, 2014. But Halaby had been a high-ranking official for a regime that had been widely admonished in countries like the one he had just landed in, for its violent crackdown on peaceful protests, as well as the brutal conflict that had ensued. And the war was getting even more ferocious by the day. So how had he been allowed to enter France? Director at CJA, the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, Bill Wiley.
3: It's in the public domain that Al-Halabi was moved initially to Paris by one of the French security services. It was common practice early in the conflict of the French to move higher ranking regime defectors to France to debrief them. Sometimes they would debrief them in the region. Turkey or Jordan in particular. For whatever reason, Al-Halabi was one of the ones moved to France. So that aspect was and is not unusual. So it was the French intelligence services, the
0: DGSI, who had arranged for Halabi to travel from Jordan to France. The DGSI would have no doubt been aware of how the Syrian security services were run. Not least because in January 2014, a month before Halabi landed in France, photographic evidence smuggled out of Syria by a regime defector codenamed Caesar had been released. These photos documented the killing of 11,000 detainees in Syrian regime custody. And were later and continue to be used as evidence in criminal cases being built by European prosecutors, including the French. So it was not despite of, but because of his status as a high-ranking official within the Syrian regime that the French intelligence seemed to have been willing to help Halabi. They apparently considered him someone who could be useful. Perhaps he could reveal more about the inner workings of the Syrian intelligence services. But was Halabi truly someone who had given up the regime and switched sides? Was he truly a defector? Steve Costas.
2: Defections, I think, should be really scrutinized. I mean, if the defection happened on the day that the town was liberated or the day before, it's not really a defection in my view.
0: And Halabi had left his position as head of state security in Raqqa at the same time that opposition forces seized the city from regime control. Working with defectors can be tricky territory especially if there is reason to believe that they were involved with criminality and question marks over whether, like Halabi, they truly defected or had other motives. Opinions are divided, and however the French intelligence planned on working with or using Halabi is different to how legal NGOs like the Open Society Justice Initiative and CIJA approach the issue of including defectors in legal cases.
2: I think the answer is different for law enforcement than it is for a civil society organization like ours. So for us, for NGOs, we should always be extremely cautious about involving a defector witness, particularly if there are concerns about their possible wrongdoing or possible criminality. Generally speaking, with defectors, our approach has been if we think that they were involved in criminal conduct, then we don't have contact with them. If we think that they were part of the Syrian government but defected without having been involved in criminal conduct, then we have in some occasions relied on them as sources and have involved them as witnesses in cases with their consent. but. Generally speaking, we're very cautious about engaging with defectors.
0: Whether his defector status was of concern to the French intelligence or not, there was also another reason Halabi could have been seen as potentially useful to them. The anticipation that the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, was going to
3: lose the war. There's debriefing defectors, and then there's also identifying guys to take over at different levels in the event that the regime falls. It's important to keep in mind that the Syrian regime militarily was losing the war until September 2015. But until that point, it appeared that the regime was going to be defeated militarily by the opposition. So it's natural that States with a strategic interest in Syria would engage in all manner of activities designed to protect their interests. If the Assad regime collapsed, somebody has to be in charge. It's the same when Germany was smashed and Japan in 1945. There wasn't tremendous changes save at the highest reaches of the political structure because you need to keep the countries functioning.
0: Writer and journalist, Kinan Khadesh, agrees with Bill. If you want to
4: have a new government in Syria, you would use elements from the old regime. A lot of analysts talked about the huge mistake that the USA did in Iraq, that they didn't use any elements from the old regime, which made the whole country collapse. You can't build a whole system from scratch. And it looks like you know how to play his cards.
0: Whatever usefulness Halabi might have held, the preferential treatment he seems to have received from the French intelligence is pretty disquieting. This man, allegedly responsible for serious crimes against humanity, was flown to France and given a visa when, at the same time, millions of Syrians who had been displaced by persecution from their own regime had had to endure much harsher journeys to places of safety. The word that keeps coming to my mind is unjust. Look at Aleppo, for example, Syria's second largest city in the north of the country. More and more people were fleeing Aleppo as the city was shelled by the regime, who were trying to oust the rebels from the parts they were occupying, like East Aleppo. Diana Khayata was there. It was October 2012, and her children had already fled Syria a month earlier with her ex-husband. Diana decided it was time for her to leave too. She made it to a relative's house where she called her brother. He came to pick her up. They hailed a taxi to take them to the border with Turkey.
5: The checkpoint that was Babel Hawa? It was completely ruined. It was like a battlefield. It was uh, shelled and burned. So it was literally like all black and fire and rebels. And it was so weird. It was like a movie, literally. And then he just checked my brother's ID, and he said, yeah, God be with you. And we just crossed. And then, literally, you are shifting like you are in a time zone kind of tube, shifting out from something super weird to natural life. It's normal life, everything is normal, like crowded because of it was Eid or something, I don't remember what was an occasion in Turkey and everything was filled, you cannot find a spot in any bus, it's, it's a normal life.
0: Diana didn't stop in southern Turkey, but continued on with her journey.
5: And then I took a bus to Adana, and from Adana I took another bus to Istanbul. And then uh, immediately to the airport, I took an airplane to Egypt, Cairo.
0: 48 hours after leaving Aleppo, Diana was with her parents in Cairo, where they had fled to a few months earlier. The family soon decided to move to Turkey to try and find more opportunities to work. They crossed by ship in February 2013, a month before Halabi himself arrived in Turkey.
5: I had many struggles with my family personally, and after two months of staying with them, I have decided to actually leave. And I cannot describe this day because it was a mess. I really had to fight my way out of my family in order for me to be able to be independent, live on my own, start building up a career, but I didn't leave until I secured a job in Gaziantep.
0: Gaziantep is a major city in the south of Turkey, not far from the border with Syria. As more and more Syrians fled there, the city became a central location for numerous international and Syrian NGOs. Diana found a job with one of them and moved to Gaziantep on her own.
5: I remember I was crying every night the first week I had a small room, like a studio, but it's a very tiny room. Everything in it. Like if you want to reach to your, I don't know, towel, it's there. Your soap is there. It's all there. Your food is there. You're just like one hand away. (sighs) I was so scared because I needed to prove myself because I fought my way out of my family. I needed to succeed. There is no other option but succeeding.
0: Despite having come so far, Diana felt a huge part of herself was missing. She was still separated from her children.
5: In my career, I was succeeding. A lot of people were saying, you are living the dream life. But I wasn't happy. No. I am from day one a mother. I am very tired of the idea of that I am on hold mother. I want to be reunited with my children.
0: As Diana was taking the first steps to an independent life, Kinan Khadesh also decided to leave Syria.
4: I left Syria around 2014. By that time, The conflict was escalating, and I have been already like two years wanted by the regime. I was living for the last two years like in a very, very small circle, not leaving certain areas. Like, and if I have to leave these areas, I have to go through a lot of uh, playing. It was uh, very dangerous to move. I felt like at the end I was like just trapped.
0: In mid 2014, Kinan moved to Lebanon. After just seven months there, he felt he needed to be closer to Syria. He decided to move to Gaziantep, the same city Diana was living in. Many Syrians had now fled to the city as the war inside the country escalated by the day.
4: When I came to Lebanon, I had all my things in a suitcase, but I've never unbacked in Lebanon because I knew like, I had a couple of months in my passport and the regime will never give me another uh, passport. And if I unbacked, Lebanon is a very small country. To have the idea that my passport will run out and I would stay the rest of my life in Lebanon was, was a big nightmare. So I never unpacked. But by the time I came to Turkey, and I didn't speak any Turkish and I, it was bigger than I imagined in my mind. It's like a huge country, but it was very beautiful. I unpacked and I thought I'm going to stay. I thought yes, I'm not so far from Syria and I thought like I will stay at least until the conflict is over which, like, for a the naive young person, thought like it's, uh, it's, it would be like a couple of months, a
0: year. The opposition fighting the Assad regime had made major gains by this point of the war. But the conflict had also splintered. With the entry of foreign militias and extreme Islamist groups like ISIS, the war wasn't just between the Syrian regime and the armed opposition. And life under ISIS was turning out to be just as violent and dangerous as life under the Assad regime. Activist Abdallah was there.
1: I noticed that they will kill everybody against them. I hide. I didn't sleep at my apartment. They tried to kidnap me multiple times. Then we took the decision with my friends to leave together to Turkey. So I think on eighteen of January 2014, I moved to Turkey.
0: How did you move to Turkey?
1: It's a long story, but we succeed to go. I, I think ISIS, they knows that we are leaving.
0: And they send a guy to go with us to Turkey to give him the cover. At the time, Abdallah and his friends did not know that this guy was a member of ISIS. They thought he was like them, another activist. Abdallah thinks that the reason ISIS even allowed them to go to Turkey without any problems in the first place was in fact to provide cover for this person.
1: He was responsible for receiving the Mujahideen, the fighters and the foreign fighters to Turkey, receive them, then send them, helping them to enter Syria. This guy who was responsible for the, the three girls who came from UK, this guy called Muhammad Rashid,
0: One of these girls was Shamima Begum, one of the three East London schoolgirls who famously traveled to Syria in 2015 to support ISIS. So they guaranteed your security if you give the cover to this guy so he can go recruit in Turkey to bring back the mujahideen. Yeah, kind of. But they also, they sent the other guy with us. Abdallah and his friends were unaware that this other guy was also a member of ISIS. He rent
1: apartment, exactly in the same building where
0: I rent. So they know everything about us,
1: and so he keep eye on us. At that time, they can kill anybody everywhere. And they killed many activists in Orfa and in Gaziantep, our friends.
0: It's safe to say Abdallah, Kinan, and Diana all had a very different escape out of Syria compared to Halabi's. Although they had made it out of Syria, and were with hundreds of thousands of other Syrians in Gaziantep, they couldn't let their guard down. Southern Turkey was busy with militants coming and going between Syria and Turkey, and the reach of the Assad regime even extended across the border. Kinan didn't feel safe, so he decided to continue his journey. And at that moment,
4: I don't know if this hysteria of the war or PTSD or just being panicked, I just didn't think about it. I knew that there is no way back. But where I want to go, I didn't know which country. I gave some clothes away, sold my laptop. Like, I had all my belongings in my backpack.
0: Kinan and some friends left Gaziantep on foot.
4: I crossed with the boat to Greece, and I walked the Balkans.
0: A couple of months after leaving Turkey, they arrived in Budapest, the capital of Hungary.
4: And we found somebody to take us to Bavaria, like a smuggler. But uh, at that moment, we were already two months on the road. We were like so exhausted, hungry, <laughs> very cold. And uh, we never trusted a smuggler. And he told my friend, okay, uh, who would take the first shift? Somebody has to stay awake in the car. He said, yeah, don't worry. I will take the first shift. You go sleep. And so I fell asleep. Then I woke up. Uh, the smuggler was saying, go, go, go. And I said, yeah, but where? <laughs> and I looked at my friend who was sleeping. He was just snoring at my shoulder. As I woke him up, I said, do you know where we are? He said, no, I was sleeping. <laughs> so as I asked him, where are we? He said, in Germany. I didn't really believe him, but like, we, I had no other option just to leave the car. We left the car and just started walking these dark streets alongside trees and forests. Uh, and I was uh, a little bit anxious. I don't have any charge in my phone and just check my maps. We walked for 20 minutes, of course very tired, and then a police car stabbed us. Also, it was dark. It was like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. And he talked to me in a language that they didn't understand. And he started talking to me in English. Where are you from? I pretended not to talk English. do not understand English. I just, and then I kept talking. <laughs> so he came out from the car and he started asking us questions. And I told my friends, no, don't answer any questions. Because, like, this is my instinct, not to trust people in uniform. Then... I asked him, where are we? And I think he wanted to make a joke. He said, in Russia. <laughs> at, the, at that moment, I believed him. <laughs> I really did him. <laughs> you're in Russia. <laughs> and then I started talking, how, how come? Are you serious? I'd say, no, you're <laughs> I said, no, you talk English. And he started laughing. <laughs> then I saw, saw after that the flag and, and his hand, and I realized, yeah, we are in Germany.
0: Kinan had made it to Germany, to safety. Like Kinan and like Halabi, Diana had also decided to try and get to Europe.
5: I decided to leave Turkey because I battled even in Turkey to win a custody on my children. Once I understood the legal rights of mine and also the basic human rights for anyone, that's when I knew what my case is. That's when I understood all the aspects of my case with my children. So the first thought is I need a civil law country. Then I decided to choose Netherlands because when I was searching what country defends human rights the most, especially women's and children's rights, Netherlands was the one that pops up the most. So I knew that this is my right destination.
0: Unlike Hallaby, Diana didn't have any connections in intelligence services or amongst influential politicians that could help her get to the Netherlands.
5: So in 2015, in March, I've decided to resign from my work and uh, take the death trip coming to Europe. We don't name a death trip for nothing. It was really painful. It was a really hard journey. So I decided to be smuggled from Turkey, from Izmir, through the rubber boat trip to Greece and from Athena uh, in Greece. I smuggled myself, interestingly enough, smuggled myself with a fake idea and I travelled from Athena to Rome. I remember in the airplane from Rome to Amsterdam, which is the final obstacle, let's say. I was waiting, not just for the door of the airplane to close, but the airplane to kick off. And the minute we rise above the ground, I put my head on the window and I immediately sobbed in tears. And the guy next to me, He was like, are you okay? What's going on, are you okay? Because I was sobbing. And I told him, I'm afraid of flying.
0: After a two and a half hour flight, Diana touched down at Amsterdam Schiphol airport.
5: I was jumping out of joy. And then I had to stand in the costume and i was hearing this weird sound like gates open in in some direction so i was looking and seeing people doing something and then crossing very fast and i looked at the sign and it says eu passport holders and they were literally just putting their passport on a machine and the gate open a gate of a country open and here i am standing in customs And after a death trip, waiting with a a fake ID by the customs. And there are people, just because of the location they were born in, crossing by just putting their paper on a device, for God's sake. And I I felt envied at that moment. I'm not going to hide it.
0: Diana's ID must have been a good fake, because she made it through customs with no problems. She then traveled to Terapel, in the north of the Netherlands, where the main asylum center and immigration office is.
5: I remember it was Sunday, and the lady told me there is no officers there working today. So she made me sleep on a bench in a kindergarten section in the immigration office. And on Monday, they check you, the security guys check you, check your fingerprints. And so the process starts of, of asylum seeking.
0: Diana quickly received asylum seeker status. She could now begin fighting to get her children back. Although they had brought him into the country, it seemed that once Hallaby had actually arrived in France, the French intelligence didn't want anything to do with him. Any information Hallaby had that he could exchange in return for continued beneficial treatment, the French seemed not to be interested in.
3: It appears that the French realized that Al-Halabi was too toxic, so they abandoned him. He ran out of money. Halabi had only been issued a 90-day visa.
0: So when that expired, he decided to apply for asylum in France. So when a
6: foreign national arrives in France, he or she can apply for protection and asylum to avoid being sent back to his country or her country, especially if there is a risk of death penalty or something like that.
0: Colonel Éric Émeraud is the former head of the French Central Office for the fight against crimes against humanity, war crimes and genocide. After filing a claim for asylum, Halabi would then have had to wait to be called by OFPRA, the French Office for the Protection of Refugees and Stateless Persons.
6: The applicant then uh, undergoes a thorough interview to check whether he or she is eligible for French protection. When they apply for that, they are supposed to be uh, interviewed by uh, people uh, we used to uh, call uh, protection official. If these people detect some gaps in the applicant's uh, speech or identity, the protection official can investigate further. Finally, if there are some doubts about the possible involvement of that person in crimes uh, against peace. Any country, it's not special for France, any country can refuse him protection under the Article 1.
0: Generally, any country that is a state party to the 1951 United Nations Refugee Convention will offer refugees protection, for example, in the form of asylum. However, like Colonel Emerald says here, if someone applying for this protection may be guilty of such crimes against humanity as Halaby is suspected of, the protection can be refused. After his interview, all Halabi could do was wait for a decision from the asylum authorities.
6: They are in France as a refugee, so they are waiting for the final decision of the French administration. And so they don't have to do anything special, in fact. We have to have people in which he's supposed to be in contact with. And he's waiting for the for the answer. They have to stay in the country because they ask for asylum in in uh, in France. So if they ask asylum for in in one country, they have to wait. They are not able to go asking asylum in other
0: country. In fact. As he waited in Paris for the asylum authority's decision, little did Halabi know that his asylum interview had triggered an investigation within the French refugee office, OFPRA. It would appear that during the interview, he hadn't tried to hide the facts of his previous career back in Syria. And alarm bells hadn't just been sounded in France. As news and stories continued to emerge of atrocities being committed in Syria, Western legal investigators, as well as Syrian lawyers and activists who had fled the country, were ramping up efforts on how to address the serious crimes that were being committed in Syria. Steve Costas was one of those lawyers. A senior legal officer at OSJI, the Open Society Justice Initiative, Steve has led their work on Syria since 2014.
2: OSJI, along with you know many organizations, were trying to understand what could be the shape of accountability work with respect to all of this criminality. There were efforts to refer the situation in Syria to the ICC, which was then vetoed by uh, Russia and China.
0: This was when Russia and China vetoed attempts by coalitions of states in the United Nations Security Council to refer Syria to the International Criminal Court, the ICC. The first veto happened in May 2014. By this stage of the war, an estimated 160,000 people had been killed and millions of Syrians had been displaced. But with the ICC no longer an option to try and deliver justice for these crimes, legal investigators had to get creative.
2: And really with that door closing, we and everyone saw that the options were really limited in significant ways. So in 2014, 15 and 16, so for three years, we organized large roundtable meetings amongst international and Syrian and documentation NGOs. And the first meeting was called in Turkey, and then later two meetings in Berlin. And the purpose initially was to hear about the experience of the NGOs that were already working on accountability for the atrocities in Syria. So to hear about their experience of it, what they perceived as the gaps and the ways in which NGOs could collaborate or coordinate
0: more. And there was one Syrian who was about to help bridge those gaps and steer the course of justice for Syria onto a new path. Abdallah, the activist from Raqqa. In the last episode, we heard how Human Rights Watch investigator Lama Fakhi explored the inside of State Security Branch 335, Hallerby's branch, after the liberation of Raqqa. Files were strewn all over the building. Files that could have held important evidence of the crimes that had gone on inside the branch. Lama and her colleagues didn't take any of these documents from Branch 335 with them. But it turns out, Abdallah had. Not from 335, but from another intelligence branch in Raqqa.
1: Because I have a low background, from the first day of liberation of Raqqa, I went with my friend to the political security branch, and I took all the documents. So the FSA, they succeed to enter the, the ground floor. At that time, I went with the FSA, with my friend. I bring four or five big bags of documents. I collect all the documents. This is in 2000. 13 on March. So I start from that day collecting the documents. I know that uh, these documents, it will be very important in the future for the justice.
0: Where did you bring them at the time?
1: I bought two bags at my place or one and my grandpa also I put one and my friend also I bought one or two. So like four or five four bags? Four or five bags, big bags, all documents. With the names, signatures, stamps. ISIS, they came and they occupied my, or take control of my apartment and they take for this documents, they take, take them.
0: But the ones that were in other places?
1: Yeah, other places, they, they moved them to Turkey.
0: These documents that Abdallah had taken from inside a Syrian intelligence office were highly incriminating. They were evidence of the crimes the Syrian regime had perpetrated. And they had now made it out of Syria. If these documents had made it out of Raqqa, could evidence pertaining to Halabi and branch 335 also make it out? In France, more bad news was about to come Halabi's way. This is journalist at the German news magazine Der Spiegel, Wolf Wiedmann-Schmidt. Wolf began investigating the Halabi story in 2021.
1: Well, as far as I recall, there were some problems in France. I think it was pretty obvious that the French authorities were not that happy about him being there and it looked like the French asylum authorities would reject his claim and they had already been suspecting him of war crimes.
0: Was Halleby's recent past about to catch up with him? The Syria Trials, the disappearing general, is hosted by me, Fritz Streif. If you are enjoying this new season, please do leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We love to hear what you think, and it'll really help us reach new listeners. And if you're an Arabic speaker, please also check out our sister series in Arabic. You can find us both at 75podcasts.org. Thank you for listening.